We are glad to have you. And uh, we're getting near at our church the end of our series in the book of 1 John. Uh, We like to preach expositionally, which means uh, through a book, so we can focus on what God has to say and His agenda for us rather than our agenda for Him. So we're continuing and we're wrapping up this series and this summer we're going to be uh, looking at some Proverbs which have all kinds of wisdom and practical insight for daily living. Uh, even if you don't fall under the category uh, that it's classified as, which some of them I hope you don't, for example, adultery. But in that section on Proverbs, we will see a lot about integrity and other stuff as well. So uh, it's a neat series. So, so there will be titles, which are broad categories, but in those Uh, categories, you will find some very clear applications, regardless of whether you're in that phase or stage or not. So there could be adultery, there could be parenting, there could be whatever, but it will have stuff for you. So today uh, we continue with 1 John. And what's interesting about this uh, text, many things, but as I looked at it this week, I looked at the title And the title was entitled, uh, Pray Like Jesus. And I thought to myself after studying that passage, how in the world did I come up with that title? (laughs) That's nowhere close to the theme of the text this week, although I guess in some ways it's related because there's prayer in there. But if you want to know how to pray like Jesus, a better way to do that is to go to uh, mefchurch.org and look under... um, resources and you'll see teaching seminars and there's a seminar that walks you through uh, the Lord's prayer and that is his model prayer to us how we should pray how he taught us to pray and that's probably a much more apt title for that than it is for this text today if I was to retitle it I would um, probably call it this I would say it something like this anything so long as This is also the theme for today, which you'll probably see on a slide here in a little bit. But this I would call the title for today's uh, short text is anything, and I mean anything, so long as. So I'll walk you through that in just a bit. But one of the things I want to express is how interesting this text was to me, because as you think about prayer, you know, there's a lot of teachings in the Bible on prayer. Even if you just isolate it to Christ, uh, there's a whole bunch of different teachings. For example, Jesus gives us, as I mentioned earlier, what we often call the Lord's Prayer. Now, really, this isn't the Lord's Prayer for a number of reasons. One is Jesus would never say, forgive me for my sins. Jesus never prayed that. He never will. He never sinned. This is not his prayer. (laughs) Jesus never says, oops, I messed up. God, will you please forgive me? That's not Christ's prayer. This is the disciples' prayer. This is the model prayer that he gave them. Christ's prayer is in John 17. But today what we have is a really neat deal where John, the beloved uh, disciple, is going to, in a very real way, sort of summarize all the teachings on prayer. In only three short verses, I was blown away at the profoundness of this text. It is astounding. Jesus, he teaches us certain things, like he'll say, Um, ask and it will be given you. Now, anyone who's been a Christian before is like, huh? (laughs) You know, because I've asked a lot of stuff and it's not always given me. 
And true to form, Jesus is an enigmatic teacher. He says stuff that jars you a little bit. And it causes you to think. And it leaves some questions in your mind. And sometimes he overstates things to make his point. And you stand there scratching your head and you're like, how am I going to understand this? Well, that's in Matthew chapter 7. And shortly thereafter, he says, oh, by the way, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth. So it's not completed teaching yet. There's more to come and the Spirit is going to illuminate that. Well, John here is giving us that sort of completed form. He's pulling it all together and saying, this is what all of that means. Those short maxims, those pithy statements, those enigmatic teachings. Let me help you flesh that out in real life. What is this thing we call prayer? How in the world does it work? How can I make sense of the statements like, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. How does prayer actually work? Can we be certain that God really does hear us? He's a long ways away. I don't see him. I don't feel him. He's far off. Can he hear? Idols, they have ears, but they don't hear. What about our God? No ears. Can he hear? Wrestling in prayer is something that we've probably all done. Certainly Jesus shows us an example in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we come to this section of our text and we say, wow, how do I know that God will answer my request? And bottom line is that's what I'm after, right? When you go to God, you want him to hear you and you want him to say yes. Now we can, I suppose, at times pretend to be extra spiritual and say, no, 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 I'm not that guy. The only reason I go to God is to praise him. But the reality is, probably most of us often even begin with our request. And you know how that is in real life, right? Like there's that guy who only calls you when he wants something, you know. After a while, you're like, what can I do for you? You know, because you know he's not calling to say, hey, you did a good job or I'm glad to have you around. He wants to borrow your tools or whatever. (laughs) That's that guy. We don't want to be that guy, but. At the same time, we've got a real God who can help us and cares about us, and we want to present our request to him. So how do we go about doing that? 1 John chapter 5 is going to answer all of those questions. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me. Uh, I'm not going to read it quite yet. I want to just refresh your mind as to what's going on. But put your finger in chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 13. John is writing to them on prayer. And as I've said, you know, this is a short summary section. But what's interesting is why at this point, at the very end of the book, is he talking about prayer? Why now? Well, what's happening, if you recall, is that John is writing to his little children, his sheep, his fellow believers in the faith. And he's saying to them, hey, I know what your lives are like. They're hard. They're difficult. And you don't have everything you want. You struggle. You mess up. You sin. Other people attack you. They bother you. There's opposition left and right. You look at your local congregation and you see that the numbers are shrinking. False teachers are pulling people away. And you're struggling with the budget. I'm actually talking about First John right now. <laughs> and all of that is true. 
And John wants to encourage them. And he says, hey, guys, look, it's not as bad as it seems. Everything is okay. This is we are on track with Jesus Christ. And so throughout this book, even though despair is everywhere and people are abandoning left and right, he's saying, hang on. Yes, there are wolves. Yes, there are traitors. Yes, there are people who abandon you. But cheer up. God is greater than our hearts. And even when all else fails, God is good. And we, as a result, can walk away confident in that. So throughout this series, what I've been trying to do is communicate that message. And we've used a lot of different illustrations. So here's your pop quiz for this morning. Uh, Beginning with international apple pies... We started the series and said there's going to be some key themes or key words that show up. Key ingredients. What were some of the key words like? Love. Good. I'm glad I could turn on the lights for you this morning, perhaps. And another key ingredient. So love, light, and life. The Apostle John is talking about all those things. All right, Let me try a simpler one. Um, The princess bride illustrated. The the princess bride, the movie, the key statement is. True love. Exactly right. Okay, more coffee next time. Attorneys. Jesus is our advocate. I'll just read the rest of these for you. I'm giving up here. (laughs) Toxicologist. Discern what is true and false. The board game, guess who, about figuring out who the real Jesus is. All of these things we walked you through to try to connect the message of 1 John, which is basically this. Look, it's your job to walk in the light of God's love and victory and not be led astray by anything false. If I were coming to this point and summing up this book, this is how I'd say it. You guys, listen. Walk in the light of God's love and his victory. Don't be discouraged. Look at Jesus. And don't be led astray by anything false. This is the message of 1 John. So now in chapter 5, he's concluding and he's wrapping it all up. And he wants to sort of reinforce all of those themes in his final statements. And so basically, he's going to use prayer as a catalyst or a way of doing that, to say, here's your confidence, here's your hope, here's how things are going to work. So, in this passage, you will see basically three things. This is the belief, assurance, confidence slide. What you will see is this. You will see our belief, which is the first verse. He's going to say, okay, you are believers. You are the believing ones. And then in the second verse, he's going to say, now, here is God's assurance to you, the believers. And then in the third verse, he's going to say, here's the result, the confidence that you have. Because you believe in him, God assures you. And as a result of the assurance you receive from him, you take that to heart and now you feel confident. Like, yes, I believe. Okay, so what? Now God is saying, good, you believe. Awesome. I am going to follow through and fulfill your faith. And then you say, cool, all right, God's got this. Belief, assurance, confidence. This is the movement of this text. 
So let me go ahead and read that to you, and we'll get to these next slides here in just a second. But this is 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. It says this. This is John summarizing the point of his letter. This is a, this is a purpose statement in the book. I write these things. Why? Why am I writing this whole book to you? You who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life, to give you that assurance and confidence. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He will hear us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, then we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. If we are the believing ones, if we are the ones who believe, then we have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have, that when we ask, He hears us. And consequently, when God hears us, it means He answers us. 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. Now, let me remind you again, if you're not already asking this question, you probably have. This is a struggle that uh, the believer has with prayer. As you say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Pastor Jeremy, you just told me that if I pray, I get what I ask for. That's what you said, right? Well, yeah, kind of. I'm confused because I've prayed before and sometimes the answer is yes, but sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes there's no answer at all. Sometimes it's wait. Sometimes there's silence. How in the world can this be true? The funny thing is, is that as you look at this text, there is a condition, but it's a condition that's easily fulfilled. And I'll explain that. As we walk through it. But here's, here's what happens that is so profound. Basically John is saying. Anything goes. So long as. So long as. You can have anything you want. So long as these three conditions are met. So let's put these three conditions on the board. And here is the structure of today's text. That we will follow. This is an earlier slide. It is this. As long you can have anything you want from God, as long as you ask in faith in his person in a, and in accordance to his will. And if you do that, you can have the confidence that he will answer in faith in his person and in accordance with his will. If you like formulas, another way to uh, summarize it might be like this. Basically, um, I would say the formula here is the person plus the will equals the guarantee. I know that's not very complicated. That's as far as I get with formulas. <laughs> Simple addition. Person plus will equals guarantee. There it is. Faith in his person in accordance with his will, you can be confident that God will answer. So let me uh, flesh out a little bit about what I mean by that. Uh, number one, in, you, at, you must ask in faith in this person. Verse 13 says this, I write these things to whom? To those of you who believe. Now, I'm assuming for the sake of argument that many of you have believed in Jesus this morning. If you haven't, talk with us. Anyone who's standing up front afterwards will be glad to walk you through that. We're happy to share our faith. But for those of you who have believed, this is what it means for you to believe in the name of the Son of God. 
This is, in a sense, asking in faith. Asking in belief. Now here is one of the biggest Christian errors in all of Christianity. And you see it happen all the time. And it leads to the absolute destruction of people's faith. What happens is people will pray for something. And they'll say, I am asking in faith. I am believing that God will give it to me. We are calling in the name of Jesus and we know he will answer. God will answer our request. Then, the person dies. You go, whoa, what just happened? I believe that he would heal him. I prayed that he would. I said in the name of Jesus. And the answer is no. What's up? Maybe uh, this text is wrong. Maybe the Bible is inconsistent with itself. Maybe God is not as powerful as he claims. All of those things could be one answer to the solution. Another could be that I'm in error. Perhaps I'm sinning. Perhaps something's not going right. And indeed, you watch people take these two interpretations to this text and they walk away destroyed. Because there may be someone who's completely genuine in their faith and believes in all their heart and God and has no sin in their life. And they come around some charismatic friends and these people lay their hands on them and say, come on, be healed. The person's not healed. And they're like, well, I guess you're in sin. You got a problem then because if you weren't in sin, God would answer. That shows me you must have demons or sin or something going wrong in your life. Is that true? Well, just ask Job's friends if that was right. It's not always the case. So what then? Perhaps the text? No. In context, this has a very, very specific meaning. If you actually apply it as it intends, then the answer is yes. If you pray anything in Jesus' name, you'll get it. But, yeah, but, that's true. But, the way we think of it is entirely different than what this text means. What happens here is in the, um, let me, I'm going to step back just a little bit. So, Asking in Jesus' name in a Semitic context, in an Old Testament or even a New Testament context, to do something in someone's name is like this. A Semitic name represents not just a formula or nomenclature, but instead what it is, is it is in accordance with the person and their nature and their character. According to their values. It is who they are. A name is highly significant. This is where I sit down because I've got to explain this and it's really tricky to me. So I want to think clearly and walk you through it. So when you talk about someone's name, in our culture, we come up with all this weird stuff. You know, it's fun now to come up with unusual names and they combine letters and spellings and all sorts of strange things and we go, oh, that's cute, that's unusual. Ooh, I, I mean... We've, we've, uh, I should be careful, but we've met people who are actually named Elsa recently, okay? I mean, movie characters, you know, parts of the earth, whatever. Names are just something we get creative with. But in the Old Testament, this name thing was extremely important. You know, this name is going to be carried down through generations and it will represent this family. 
It is everything to them. And so for us, we think of it and we hear the words in Jesus' name and we go, okay, so dear Lord, please give me a good day in Jesus' name, amen. I prayed in Jesus' name, right? Dear Lord, please help me find my keys in Jesus' name, amen. Dear Lord, if you will this, in Jesus' name, amen. And in a very real way, what we're doing is reverting back to Judges chapter 11 and jumping into Japheth's prayer. And we're trying to bring God down to us and bind him by our terms and sort of wrap up this agreement by putting Jesus' name around it. It's a little bit like a magical formula where you're saying, hocus pocus, alamogokus, shabam, I got what I want. And that is not it in any way whatsoever. When you pray in Jesus' name, it's saying you are to pray in conformity to his person, in accordance with his will, in all that he stands for, upholding his moral values and wanting to glorify him. It's totally different than trying to tie a bow on the end and make it work for you. When you pray in Jesus' name, you're saying, Dear God, I know that you value the salvation of the lost. Okay, I know that about you. This is your value. You gave your only son so that other people might have life and live. That is you. You went that far to do that. God, I've got a neighbor who is unsaved. Lord, you want them to be saved. According to your will, in your name, in your person, it's the only way it's going to happen, save them. That's a different prayer. You're praying in his name, according to his will, in conformity with his person and his character and his morals. That's so different than saying, Lord, I just bought a lottery ticket. I pray that I win in Jesus' name. Amen. Totally different motivation. You pray, number one, in in accordance, in conformity, to the person. Asking in faith. Look at this slide. This is profound. Loved it. From gotquestions.org. Asking in faith means not believing for something. It is believing in someone. Asking in faith is not believing for something. I ask in faith for this. No. I ask in faith believing in you. He starts out this text, he says, hey, you who believe in the name of Jesus, in the person and work of Christ, just like through this whole series, we've been emphasizing the person and work of Christ, our attorney, our advocate, our high priest, our sacrifice, our atonement, our substitute, in that we have faith. Asking in faith is not believing for something. It is believing in someone. Thank you. This is what it means to ask in faith. So first of all, you you pray in faith in the name of Jesus. Now, I want to give you some assurance here uh, and also some challenge. One challenge is this. That's why it's so important to know Jesus and know who he is. Because you can't pray in his name if you have no idea what he stands for. The more you know him, the more your 
prayers will be in his name. In other words, your, listen to this, see if I can say it right, your view of prayer reflects your view of God. And your view of God will show up in the way you pray. As you think of God as just some, you know, distant genie in the sky, hey, he's here to answer my wishes, whatever, that's the way I'll pray. But if I see him as the almighty, glorious savior of the world who is high and lifted up, who has a very specific purpose and plan for mankind, if I want to pray in his name, according to that, I pray differently. How you view God influences your prayers and your prayers show me how you view God. There is the challenge. Now, let me give you a bit of an assurance. Um, In this Semitic culture, you attach your name to something that is significant. In similar ways, so too in our society. I'm going to use marriage as an illustration later, but let me begin with something that happens later, and that's the power of attorney. You know, oftentimes when one person is nearing the end, you make sure, or even if you're wise at the beginning in case something happens, that the person who knows you best and cares about you most has your power of attorney. That if you are incapacitated, they can um, make decisions on your behalf because they know you well. So, for example, uh, something horrible happens to me. I'm out playing soccer. And a little kid kicks the ball super hard and it whacks me in the side of the head and I fall down and I can't talk anymore. Uh, My wife now has the power to make decisions on my behalf. Now, I love her and we've been married for over 15 years now and I feel fairly confident in her ability to do that. When we married, signed all of our accounts into one, our checkbook, you know, our retirement, everything's one. So she can just... Do what she wants. She could spend all of our money if she wanted to. And she could spend it in any way that she wanted to. Because she can sign it, Mrs. Lobdell. She has power of attorney. She puts our name down on something. And that legal transaction happens. Well now, I want to assure you Christians, this is the love that the Father has for us in that we have become the children of God. When he is giving you his name, in a sense, he's giving you the power of attorney. And so when you are adopted into that family and you become one with Christ, you now have some serious and significant power in your prayer. You can pray in Jesus' name. Now, that's not just saying, stamp, I get what I want. But when I pray according to his wishes, I can invoke the family fortune And bring it to bear on something. That's huge. You've got all of God's power. You have all of God's might right there with you. When you're praying in accordance with his name. Now you're selfish and you're disinterested. Well who's going to give someone power of attorney for that? I'm not going to walk up to some snake oil salesman on the street. And say hey would you like my checking account? (laughs) No way. But to my wife who is close to me and who loves me and has my best interest at heart, in that relationship, I'm willing to say, by all means, you get the credit card, you get the checkbook, you stamp, seal it, and sign it, and I'm good with that. I trust you. Because we are one, we are united, and I am giving you my name, and now you have that power. Praying in Jesus' name has so many significant 
aspects to our lives. It means that we pray in accordance with his person, but it also gives us the authority and power of his family. We are Christ's power of attorney. That is significant. Jesus says, you are my hands and my feet. You are my power of attorney. He means it. You are my representatives here on earth. Legal spokespersons for Christ. That's huge. It's not just the pastor, the guy up here saying, this is thus saith the Lord. It's each and every one of you adopted into the family of God. You have the same name. You have that power. And when you're functioning in accordance with the family's wishes and will, then you can stamp it and sign it and seal it. Pray according to his person. That's why in the first point I didn't say, pray in Jesus' name. (laughs) You know, because you're going to automatically think, oh, I just end my prayer. Thank you for this food in Jesus' name. Amen. (laughs) You know, it's still a good thing to remember, but we just think of it totally different. What we should say when we thank him for the food is, God, you are the creator and sustainer of all things. You brought this planet into bear. You rule over it. You taught the vine to grow. You established the process of germination. You plant the seed. You bring the sun. You drop the rain. You cause the earth to spin around it just as it does so that at the right time it brings forth fruit to me and I get to eat it. Amen. That is in Jesus' name different so then pray in accordance with his person point one um if you want to learn more about his person by the way this summer uh for seven weeks i'm going to be teaching uh jesus firm foundation in the first hour normally in the summer uh we go to one service and we're going to continue that but we're also this summer going to offer you something additional and that's a teaching time in the first period so if you want uh hopefully that will uh, enhance your prayer life as well. So John chapter 15, or 5, sorry. Continuing on, first, praying in Jesus' name. Secondly, you want to pray in, a, in, according, in accordance to his will. Now this is also something that I'm very passionate about because uh, I will locate this in the area of the vicarious exchange. The divine exchange that happens in Romans chapter 6. We talked about this a little bit in the 8th sermon of our Disciple Maker series. What we talked about victorious and missional living. And we talked about how when we identify ourselves with Jesus Christ. We are united with him. We are actually crucified with him. That we are buried with him. And that we are raised with him. To walk in newness of life. And we call that the vicarious exchange. Because even though we ourselves weren't hung up on the cross. Spiritually we were with Christ at that time. We are identifying with him. And this exchange took place. Now when we think about that exchange. What we most often like to think about. Is the legal, forensic and relational sort of thing. The stuff we get. So we were guilty Now, because of this, we're innocent. That's a change. That's an exchange. We were going to be punished, but now Christ took our punishment, so we are forgiven. We had a ruptured relationship, but now we are reconciled, and so there is reconciliation. So there's justification, atonement, reconciliation. There's death for life, 
all of the exchanges are going on at the cross. And we typically think of it in forensic or judicial or legal relational terms. But there's also an internal and spiritual exchange going on as well. What should be happening, not only in all the forensic and legal stuff, but also a desire, a heart change. So that when you, who had all these previous desires, wanted one thing, when you go up on the cross with Jesus, those desires are killed and put to death, and sin is gone, and you come up out of the grave, and you have a whole new will, a transformed life, a desire to do something different. So the Spirit has taken place of the flesh and your will has even been transformed your thinking your processes everything inside of you should be changed as well there is a spiritual exchange going on so now it is no longer a desire for self but a desire for the divine it is no longer a desire for the temporary but a desire for the eternal it is no longer a desire for men anthropocentric but for God, theocentric glory. It is no longer a desire for self, but for others. It is a complete change. Now, we say, okay, that sounds good. <laughs> but the reality of life is, it doesn't always work that way for me. <laughs> Sometimes we kind of go back, right? And that old will comes back, and I want to do the stuff I shouldn't do, and yet I'm struggling and wrestling inside. So, um, how is it then that I pray in accordance with his will. When I know at the cross my will should be dead and his will should be the only one alive in me, I, I'm struggling. What, what's going on? Think of it like marriage. Should I say marriage? <laughs> marriage, you know, Princess Bride, here it comes again. Actually, Genesis 2 and Ephesians 5. I think this is fair because the Bible describes marriage not as between man and woman, but instead as between Christ and the church. The real marriage is not between you and your spouse, but between you and your Savior. Genesis 2, Ephesians 5. Think about human marriage for a minute. Here's the process. Let me walk you down this path or walk you down the aisle. Okay? Human marriage begins with a wooing. You know, the suitor comes after, pursues, I am attracted I try to draw them in. I am after them. Then eventually there is a proposal. Perhaps if you're traditional, a man gets down on one knee and says, Will you please be my wife? And then if the woman is obliged after time one, two, three, four, five, six, however many it takes, she finally gives in, there is an acceptance. And then after the acceptance, there comes the ceremony. There's a public profession. They get up on stage and the minister says, By the power invested in me, I pronounce you man and wife. Good luck. <laughs> Have fun. <laughs> and then after that, there, of course, is a celebration meal. There's a reception often. And sometimes they're huge and sometimes they're small. If you're in India, there might even be dancing, right? All kinds of fun stuff. Then there is a honeymoon. And who would fault the lovely couple who is like, Ooh, honeymoon, yay. Life is great. And then there is life. And it's difficult. But throughout that life, you grow. And you become one. And you become stronger. Now look at your Christianity. 
Genesis 2, Ephesians 5. There's a wooing. God, your lover, Song of Solomon, pursues you. And he comes and knocks on your door over and over again. Despite how many times you say no, he's not going to accept that for an answer if you're one of his. And then you eventually say yes. You give in to his proposal. You're committed to him now. But there needs to be probably a ceremony, a public profession of faith. And we call that baptism. And you come up and you get baptized and you profess your faith. And then there's a celebration meal. We call it the Lord's Supper. Where now you commune with him. And you enjoy that fellowship because you have been wed and you're in love. And then there's a honeymoon. Who hasn't seen a brand new Christian who's like, woohoo, Jesus? Right? And you wouldn't fault them for that. In fact, it's encouraging to you as well. And you say, oh, remember the day when I first came to Christ and what a change it made and how different things were. I was so excited on fire. I didn't know left from right, but I was telling everybody about it. And then there's the growth in the Christian life. Man, it's a struggle at some times, but guess what? As you struggle, you become more and more one. And as you do so, you grow stronger. So too in the Christian life. Now, let me go to PG-13 right away. Are you ready? If you haven't had the birds and the bees talk, uh, you guys may want to exit. This is your opportunity. I'm going to try to be as discreet as I possibly can and not embarrass my wife or anyone else. But the reality is this. Guys, you know what I'm talking about. Ladies, you do too. But especially you guys. Marriage. You guys are probably looking forward to something in particular. Okay? Especially if you're a Christian. You're like, woo, marriage. And a girl's thinking, oh, marriage. You know, we get to talk. And we get to enjoy fellowship and hanging out. And a guy's like, marriage. Right? Oh, here we go. So the guy's looking forward to marriage for one reason. And a girl another. And the you get married, and there's the honeymoon. The guy's like, great, you know, and he's thinking, honeymoon, life, marriage. And then there's life. Now, what would happen in a human marriage if all, the woman, all of a sudden the woman said, okay, we've had our honeymoon, we're good, that's it, that's all you get. The guy's like, what kind of marriage is this? Not so great, kind of cold, not real loving, hard to be united. Our wills aren't coming together because we're never coming together. We're not united. We're different. We're distant. We're going separate ways. We're broken apart. We're not experiencing a passionate and intimate marriage. This is a bad relationship. I don't know if I don't want to stay in anymore. I might just want to get out. Maybe I could do better somewhere else. Away they go. Well, guess what happens in Christianity? You get married. You profess a relationship with Jesus Christ. You have your honeymoon phase, but after that, you need to stay intimate. And the way you do so is through prayer. Prayer is intimacy with God. And listen to this statement. Are you ready? Prayer is a mystical union. And we really mean that. Because the Spirit indwells you and is inside of you. And you become one. And you are united to Him. It is a marriage. Genesis chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 5. You are united to Christ. When you profess belief in Jesus Christ, He changed your name. And you know what it is? It's Mrs. Christ. You are the bride of Christ. That makes you His wife. That means you have His last name. 
you are Mrs. Christ. You are his Mrs. And you must be faithful. And you must come together again and again and again. And the more often, the better. And that produces unity. And through that unity and intimacy, your wills converge and combine. And therefore, when you pray, your wills are already the same. And that is what prayer does. C.S. Lewis says, I pray not because it changes God, but because it changes me. I'm not going up there to demand to get what I want. I'm going there to meet with the one I love, be united with him, and consequently experience such an amazing intimacy that I want what he wants. Now we are united. And now we are saying the same things. And now I'm praying according to his person, by his name, because I'm the missus, and we want the same thing. We are totally aligned. We are completely together. This, brothers and sisters, is exactly what you see in Jesus. When he goes into the garden, he goes at what time? Night? With all his friends watching? No, by himself. They close the door, just like you do in marriage. And they walk into the room and they pray. And initially, Jesus is struggling not Lord, I don't want this to happen. And three times he pleads. But at the end of the day, through that intimate act, they come together and their wills are united so that he can say, not my will, but yours. And you see this play out. And he goes to the cross. And then at the cross, when it's finished, what does he say? Into thy hands I commit my spirit. I am totally at your mercy. Not my will, but yours. When you see Christ laying down his life, it's a result of the struggle he had beforehand in the garden where he was intimate with the Father. Their wills unite and he moves forward and in victory accomplishes the task. This then is the confidence that we have when we pray to him in conformity to his person, in agreement with his will, that he will hear us. And what that means is God is not saying, oh yeah, gotcha, I heard it, thanks for that, I'll think about it. No, look at the word here throughout the entire Old Testament, the God who hears. What does it mean? It means that the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and he hears the cries of the afflicted ones. When God hears the people crying out in Egypt, what's he do? He delivers them. When Hagar is by the brook and she wants to die, God hears her and answers her and gives her a son. When God hears, he responds. It's not like you and me, I got that. No, for God to hear means action. It means that he does. That is why then, the author of Hebrews, when he sums up the ministry of Jesus on the cross, says it like this in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. I think there's a slide. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears he struggled to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence god delivered him god glorified him god raised him to the throne from which he descended and seated him in heavenly places 
God heard his prayer. God answered. Their wills were united, and even though it was a struggle, it was accomplished. It was finished. This is what happens in prayer. As we look at this text today, I want you to remember that if you pray in faith in his person, in accordance with his will, then you can be 100% confident that he will answer, just like Jesus. Now that doesn't mean you get what you want. That means you get his wants. He will give you the desires of your heart. That doesn't mean what you want. That means he places his desires in you. He gives you your new desires. Vicarious exchange. In 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, I don't know how good of a job I've done, but I challenge you to go back and read it again because it is the most, one of the most profound texts on prayer in the New Testament. You have this confidence. You are the believing ones. When you by faith, which we know what that means, person, not thing, when you by faith pray according to His will, you can be confident that God will hear you. Father, we thank You so much for Your amazing grace. Lord, it's absolutely astounding that You listen to us. We pray the way we want to, for the things we want, and yet You give us way more than we deserve. Lord, we pray that You would teach us to pray in conformity to Your person, according to Your will, and in peace and confidence, knowing that You will answer and hear our cry. Help us to live intimately and prayerfully united to You for the rest of the days of our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Thanks, Pastor Jim.